All right, there are 66 canonical books in what we call our Bible, and this is increment 66. We see Jesus, Hebrews 2020, a series studying an end-time hom homily, which is just for us in our times, called the Epistle to the Hebrews. It's really a sermon within an epistle, and we're learning about it. It's a word of encouragement from the Holy Spirit through an anonymous author, and it was sent to a small group of Christians, probably somewhere in the arc of Paul's missionary enterprise in the late 60s of the first century. But I'll tell you something, it's just exactly for us right now in the 21st century in a particular nation which is in a particular crossroads of its history. And speaking of crossroads, we are looking to see Jesus. We see Jesus. And he came in the crossroads of history, in the crossroads of the ages. And the cross indicated the crossroads of the ages. The end of the present evil age, which is ongoing, and the beginning and onset of the messianic age, which will be everlasting and has also begun at the cross. So we live in what I call the agona, and what the Bible calls the agon or the agona, an arena of great contention in the clash of the ages. So we need the scriptures like a fish needs water and a mammal needs air. We need the scriptures as our life, as our oxygen, as the life of our spirits. And that's why Jesus said, my words, they are spirit and they are life. We also need, whether you know it or not, we need joy. We need joy in the heart. We need joy in our innermost being. And Jesus said, I have spoken these things to you, that your joy may be full, that my joy will be in you, and that your joy will be full. Please note in John 15, 11, that our joy is only full if Jesus Christ's joy fills us, his own joy, his own rejoicing in the Father. And that's what I pray will be conveyed to you today. As Nehemiah 8, 8 through 10 says, and I love to refer to this often, when the people heard the teaching priests exegete the scriptures and bring them into their own language and give the sense, the people went out and they were instructed by those teachers to let the joy of the Lord be their strength, not to sorrow or be sorrowful or grieving, but let the joy of the Lord be your strength. And so today, Father, I pray that you will convey through the scriptures and through the spirit, the fruit of whom is joy and peace and love, that you will convey the very joy of your son to the listeners today so that we may rejoice in him forevermore, as Ephesians 5.16 says, and so that we may rejoice and again, I say, rejoice in Philippians 3.1 and 4.4. 4, even in times of great testing and trial. Make us happy warriors, Father. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Today we're going to consider Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 1, in which we will consider Jesus Christ as the apostle 
of our confession. And that's ton apostolon tes homologias in the Greek, ton apostolon tes homologias, a phrase lifted from Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 1, which I will read in my translation. My translation gives a definition to confession that I hope will be helpful to you and more applicable to our own times than even to the times in which this was written. Hebrews 3.1, therefore, sanctified siblings, brothers and sisters, you are among the many brothers and sisters, the many sons and daughters that God is calling into glory, and there are more than you can count. It's incalculable number of sons and daughters, but you are among those, if you're listening today and have believed in Jesus Christ, you are among those who are called, especially those who believe. Participants, call it partners if you want, call it sharers if you want, call it partakers in a heavenly calling. Carefully consider, it says, carefully consider. This is a mandate. This is an imperative. It is an imperative of urgency. It is a hortatory imperative. Carefully consider the apostle. The only time Jesus is ever called the apostle, apostolon, in all of the Bible is right here. And we're going to make some hay out of this and get some significance attached to that reality of Jesus as the apostle and archpriest of our confession. I translate confession as, quote, what we acknowledge as ultimate reality. The apostle and archpriest of our confession, what we acknowledge as ultimate reality comma, Jesus. Now, since we are urged here with the hortatory imperatival form of the verb kata noeo, now I'm, when I say hortatory, I mean that it takes the form of an exhortation, an impartation of incentive, an incentivization, we could say, to the hearers and the listeners. And when I say that it is imperatival, I mean that it's an imperative, simply. The Bible is filled with indicatives, which state a sta state of fact, and imperatives, which urge an action or an attitude. And here we have, then, a hortatory imperative of the verb kata noeo, which means to carefully consider, be all the more attentive, more than you have before, Consider Jesus the apostle, or as the apostle, of our confession. And so I want to expand a little bit today on apostle as a title, or we could say a descriptor of Jesus, which appears here along with archpriest. We're also going to play the numbers a little bit today, and I don't mean gambling, I mean something the opposite of gambling, actually. Numerical significance in the scriptures is often something that's very edifying. Apostolos, A-P-O-S-T-O-L-O-S, -O -O in the Greek, you'll see it in print, is found either in the singular or plural form some 80 times in the New Testament. I didn't make an extremely careful count, but I did count 80 times 
in the New Testament alone where apostolos or apostoloi or apostolus is used 80 times, either, again, singular or plural form. So it isn't a rare word or noun. It is never used as a descriptor, a title for Jesus, except for here. And so it's a hapax, which means a once and for all, once and only use of the term for Jesus, right here in Hebrews 3.1. Just how, then, are we to carefully consider Jesus as the apostle of our confession if he is called that only once in all the Bible? Well, I'd ask that question this way. How significant must this single use of apostle to describe Jesus be if it is only used once as a title for Jesus in all the Bible? Sometimes a hapax, a once and only once term, can signify that something is not that important because it's only mentioned once. Other times, like here, apostolos referring to Jesus Christ is only mentioned once to indicate its extraordinary and momentous significance as a descriptor, a word that describes Jesus, a noun, but a descriptor. Now, I grew up going to a church called St. John the Baptist Church, and it was what's weird is it wasn't a Baptist church. It was a Catholic church, but it was dedicated to or named after St. John the Baptist, who is better known as, if you're going to get literal in the Bible, St. John the Immerser or John the Immerser. So in St. John the Baptist Church in Church Street in North Bennington, Vermont, several years I served as an altar boy along with some of my boy, boyhood friends, and we often recited with the priest and the congregation what's known as the Apostles' Creed. Apostles there is in the plural and possessive, the plural possessive. So ostensibly it is what the apostles believed and passed down to the church. And it went like this, and I have to admit I forgot the words exactly so I had to look it up. But the Apostles' Creed goes like this. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven, and he sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. Now, with a couple of tweaks here and there and explanatory notes or amplifications, that creed is pretty square with the scriptures. It's pretty right on. Again, if you qualify some of the phraseology and give it a further definition. But I thought it was interesting that this was called the Apostles' Creed, or the we could say the Confession of the Apostles, 
when today we're going to consider the apostle of our confession, and that being Jesus, not one of the twelve, not Paul the apostle, not some, not one of the ten or twelve others who are given the name apostle. In fact, dozens of others are given the title apostolon in the New Testament. But Jesus, to consider Jesus the apostle of our confession. Let's consider him not from the standpoint of this only once and for all use of the noun apostolon, but from the standpoint of the related verb apostello, apostello, that's A-P-O-S-T-E-L-L, long O, or omega O, apostello. Now, I've said before, this is a commentary or a study like no other, because we have come to Hebrews by a certain route in the scriptures as a phalanx, as a local church. And it doesn't mean you have to be a member of this church to listen to this message or any messages, but we have a local assembly that has been traveling along the same scriptural road for some time. We've come to Hebrews through a particular route in the scriptures. And we came to this study long ago through the Gospel of John. It's a study of the Gospel of John, which we called the fourth G, because it's often called the fourth gospel. And we kicked off this study, and I went back in my notes, and it still is in my file. We kicked off this study with a reference to John 3.17. In other words, I didn't start the Gospel of John with John 1.1. I started with John 3.17, because in John 3.17, there is the deployment for the first time of the verb apostello, for to send or to be commissioned or appointed for a task or a mission, to be sent on a mission. And so we began, John, with a study, a whole chapter on the study of the divine missions. There are two, the divine mission of the Son, which the Father sends the Son, and the divine mission of the Spirit, in which the Father and the Son send the Spirit. These divine missions are among the most important theological discussions in all the scriptures, and we'll have much more to say about it, and I've said a lot about the divine missions. Robert M. Duran is doing a series of books, one of the most notable series of books I've ever read, and he's continuing to do so in volume three on the divine missions. It's a remarkable series of books, and again, as I said, I believe it's called The Trinity in History, Volume 1, Volume 2, he deals with divine missions, divine persons, divine processions, and all those things, but fans it out in a way that's extraordinarily applicable to our times, the divine mission. So we kicked off the study of the fourth G in connection with uh, John 3.17, which first connects Jesus with the verb apostello. Jesus, God's only eternally begotten Son, the Word who is God, who was God, who always was God and was face to face with God, who became flesh, God's only eternally begotten Son, was sent. And this was the time I was getting, if I may give somewhat of a personal testimony, I was getting the first inklings increment by increment, you might say, in the scriptures, of the universal saving significance of Jesus Christ, which is coupled with the universally 
redemptive impact of the cross of Christ. I was getting the first inklings. When I first was confronted by the Lord in 1972, I think then I had the first sense of his universally saving significance. But then, getting dumped back into the agona and the fog of war, I had to come to that over the course of some 40-plus years, to come to that realization again through the scriptures and to do it while leading and walking with other believers. And so, this time in the fourth G was when I was studying and getting the first inklings Increment by increment, here a little, there a little, you might say, of the universally saving significance of Jesus Christ. The fourth G, which we called Studies in John's Gospel, Volume 1, and we did it in several volumes, began on Thursday, May 6, 2010, over 10 years ago. Chapter 1 was entitled, The Divine Missions in the Fourth Gospel. The first verse we dealt with, again, was John 3.17, in which John had the first mention of apostello. In the first increment of that study, I said, and in my notes, I, I have them even now, I said that our treatment of the fourth gospel will be contextualized and theological, Christological and soteriological. Well, all those features also apply to Hebrews, as they apply to Revelation, as they apply to Romans, as they apply to our study of Better Call Paul, the doctrine of the mystery, doing and living theology, and even the Ephesians study that we did very early on. In this volume, I said, we will treat the divine missions. With regard to divine mission one, we will contextualize or put in context selected references to the Son S-O-N, being sent, apostello. And there's another word that's almost exactly like it in meaning, not in spelling, but in meaning, and that's the word pempo, P-E-M-P, long O. Apostello and pempo. Now, some people who are listening to this message may actually remember us treating these things long ago, 10 years ago. If you do, thank God for that memory. And then it says, the Son being sent to complete a divine mission. With regard to divine mission two, we also contextualize the reference of the Holy Spirit, who will be a great subject also in Hebrews, starting in 3.7 and other places. Being sent, the Holy Spirit is also referred to as an agent who is sent by a sender or senders. And apostello and pempo are used for the Holy Spirit to complete a divine mission. His mission is ongoing now, even as the Son's mission, though completed at the cross, is also extended into divine mission two of the Holy Spirit. So much to be said about this. And uh, any pastor who wants to take some advice, you might want to study the divine missions. And you can do so through studying the scriptures and begin right here with John. In fact, I think it would be a good exercise for you And one or maybe two of you who are listening today may actually do this because I know when I throw things out, I'm sowing seed and seed falls on all kinds of ground. But I would recommend if you want to read John's gospel, just to read the verses today that I give you, that I cite, and that have to do with apostello and pempo. 
read those verses and you'll get an overwhelming sense. And not only that, but I pray that the Holy Spirit will give you an, a clear vision of Jesus as the apostle of our confession, the apostle whom we confess as ultimate reality. So I gave the following expanded translation 10 years ago to John 3.17, and it went this this way. For God did not send Apostello, the Son, into the world in order to judge the world. On the contrary, God, that is the Father, sent him in order to save the world through him. Please notice that. How do you miss this when you read this? How do people read this and not say, whoa, to save the world, and he was sent on a mission by the Father, and the God cannot fail, and the Son cannot fail, and he was sent that God would save the world through him. Was that a successful mission? Well, I began to ask those questions. Was that mission successful? Was it partially successful? Was it a failure? Well, I contend that it was an absolute success. The manifestation of that success is yet future but we can be assured of the success of that mission. At the end of that first message, all the way back in May 6th of 2010, I concluded, and I made a wrong conclusion at that time because of what I, can, I intended to say. I concluded that John contained a, quote, soteriological dualism. And by that I meant that John revealed in his gospel that some of the human race would be saved and others would remain forever under the wrath of God. That is a false soteriological dualism. We've come a long way since then. As the commercial used to say, when women were given their own skinny cigarettes called Virginia Slims, you've come a long way, baby. We've come a long way since then. Now I've come to believe that any soteriological dualism is actually within the salvation of the whole human race. In other words, there is a kind of dualism, but it goes this way. God is the savior of all of humanity, especially of those who believe. So there is a kind of dualism, if you want to call it that, only it's a kind of a gentle dualism of salvation of all, but within the salvation of all, the salvation especially of those who believe. And those who believe are those in whom God evokes faith and promotes fidelity, as we'll see down the road. I'm going to explain some of these things as we go, so don't get stuck on any particular point. And so, we've come a long way. Now I've come to believe that any soteriological dualism is, again, within the salvation of the whole human race, because it has to do with being saved in time and not only in eternity. And so the believing has to do with the experience of deliverance and preservation and all that soteria means right in the midst of time, right in the midst of this evil age. Some are perishing in it. Some are being saved. 1 Corinthians 1.18. So, Throughout a two-year study of John's gospel called the 4th G, ended in May 9th of 2012, we were getting inklings of the USS JC, a ship at sea called the Universal Saving Significance of Jesus Christ, which began to be further developed in Rev the Book. 
and fully matured by our study of Paul, which we call Better Call Paul, especially reading Romans with the light on. And that's when the fullness of the universally saving significance of Jesus Christ came into play, especially with verses like Romans 5.18 and 19 and 11.32, in which it says that God intends to show mercy to all and has done so in Jesus Christ and him crucified. The synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, make reference to Jesus being sent. So now we're getting back down. See, we're going from the larger vista to the more precise, close-up view of apostello. Apostello is used in reference to Jesus being sent in Matthew 10.40. I was going to read all these, but instead I'll just cite them and you can look them up on your own. Matthew 10.40 and Matthew 21.37, where he tells the parable of the wicked tenants and how the vineyard owner will send, he said, I will send my son. So it's a parabolic view of the sending of this, the beloved son of God. Mark 9.37, Mark 12.6 also Apostello with relationship to Jesus Christ. Luke 10.16 also. Jesus said, if they receive you, they receive me, and they receive the one who sent me by receiving you. In Luke 4.18, Jesus famously quotes the prophecy in Isaiah 61.1. And in Isaiah 61.1, in the Septuagint, the word apostello appears because it goes like this. He applies it to himself, and therefore he is the one whom Yahweh has sent, apostello, to proclaim freedom to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind to set free the oppressed. We're going to see that the liberation, both the quality of it and the quantity of the liberation that Jesus Christ himself brings to people all over the world and to all people of all time, is to be compared and to be seen as far superior to the deliverance that God wrought through Moses for what is known as the Exodus generation. That comparison is coming up soon in Hebrews 3. Now Paul, speaking of Paul's writings, Paul encapsulates both the divine mission of the Son and of the Spirit of the Son in a little three-verse segment, Galatians 4, 4 to 6. He uses, however, a little variation on the word apostello with a prefixed preposition ex to intensify it. Ex apostello then, E-X-A-P-O-S-T-E-L-L-O. It's once used to refer to God sending his son, he says. God sent his son to redeem humanity from subjection to a law that was hijacked by sin and to make them sons. And then it refers to the act of sending the spirit of the Son into our hearts, who, arriving in our hearts, cries out, Abba, Father. And we also, with him, cry out the same thing, Abba, Father. Linking apostello with a passage we just looked at in Hebrews 2.17, expiation and propitiation, linking it with op, with propitiation in 1 John 4.10. 1 John has a reference to apostello. The scripture says God loved us and sent his son to be the propiti- propitiation, expiation 
for our sins. Now to link that up with John 3.17, we know in 1 John 2.2 2, that Jesus is the propitiation expiation for not our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world. And so to be sent simply means to be appointed for a task, a vocation, a mission, a responsibility to which one, the sent, is to be required to be faithful. The sent one, the apostolon, has to be found faithful. That's the one characteristic. If you were doing a job interview and you sought one characteristic or part of the personality of the person you're interviewing, the one thing you would seek would be faithfulness, fidelity, as we have it in the scriptures. And that's what Paul said. In fact, how do you think of pastors? How do you think of communicators of the word? We don't adulate them. We don't venerate them. They are men like we are. They have like passions like us. They have like sinfulness as all human beings. But Paul said, hey, think of us this way. There were a lot of people saying, I am of Cephas or Cephas, otherwise known as Peter. Well, no, I am of Apollos. Apollos is one of the serious contenders to be the author of Hebrews. I don't think he was, but there's a good argument that people have put forward that he just might have been. He was an Alexandrian Hellenistic Jew, and there was the author of Hebrews is probably that. He was mighty in the word and the scriptures. He had to be taught by Priscilla, the more precise accuracy of the scriptures. But some were saying, no, we're of Apollos. And others were saying, I'm of Paul. And still there was even another sectarian group that said, we are of Christ. You say, what's wrong with saying we are of Christ? Well, they were saying, we are the church of Christ and you aren't. We are of him and you aren't. It was a sectarian and factious way of saying we are of, of Jesus Christ. And so Paul said, you're all messed up. You're all factious. You're all fragmented and polarized. He said, here's how you should think of us. And it's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 1. Paul says, this is how you should regard us. Think of us as servants of Christ and trustees of the mystery of God. That's all. 1 Corinthians 4, 1 to 2. Paul then tells the Corinthians how they should think of such characters or such preachers as himself and Apollos and Peter. Then he added, and this is particularly relevant to the passage we're currently studying. He said, moreover, one, the one quality, the one quality that is required of trustees is that they would be found faithful. And the word here is pistos, P-I-S-T-O-S, which is one of the key words in our passage, Hebrews 2.17. I'm going to raise up a faithful priest who will do everything that's in my heart. You see, when I send him on a mission, he's going to be faithful to execute it in every single detail. Hebrews 2.17. Again, pistos is used in 3.2 for the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, the apostle and archpriest of our confession. And again in Hebrews 3.5. And remember, 1 Samuel 2.35, otherwise known as 1 Reigns 2.35, is still holding court here. I will raise up a faithful priest. Speaking of the archpriest, Jesus Christ. 
So if someone is sent on a mission, it's required by the sender that the sent be faithful. The sent one be faithful. Paul said, God commissioned me, considered me to be faithful, and he gave me this commission. In, his, in the Timothys, Paul makes reference to that. To be sent, therefore, is also to be appointed for a task. So look at Hebrews 3.2. He was faithful, Jesus was, to him who appointed him. Appointed, anointed, sent. So if someone is sent on a mission, it's required by the sender that the sent one be faithful to the sender and that he fulfill the mission. This is his first priority. To be sent is also to be appointed for a task, a vocation, a mission, a responsibility to which one must be faithful. In Hebrews, we're about to be told that Jesus was indeed faithful. The faithfulness of Jesus Christ is a huge theme in the scriptures running throughout Romans, running throughout Galatians, running throughout the New Testament, and running throughout Hebrews, as well as, really, the whole Word of God. So, let's go back then to John's Gospel, because I want to pick up on this word apostello, and we'll play the numbers a little bit on this. I would begin by considering the verb form, therefore, of the noun apostle, because we only have one reference to Jesus Christ as apostle. Let's check out the references to him in which the verbal form apostello is used, and there's quite a few more of those. The fourth G, as we affectionately call it, written by one whom Jesus loved and who affectionately called himself the one, the disciple whom Jesus loved, is particularly instructive with regard to apostello. That's why I say you can really study the whole Gospel of John in a single sitting if you read the verses I'm going to enumerate here or list that have this word apostello, and secondly, the verses that the word pempo is used. And in John 20, 21, Jesus said apostello and pempo mean just exactly the same thing because he said, as the Father has sent me, apostello, so send, pempo, I, you. And so they have an almost exact meaning. So the fourth G has 17 references of apostello, with reference to Jesus, God's Son. The verses which contain these references are, as I said before, 317, 334, 536. These will be in print in case you don't get them all. And in case you're driving, don't write while you're driving. Don't text while you're driving. John 5, so here they are again. John 317, 334, 536, 538, 629, 657, 729, 842, 1036, 1142, 173 in the so-called high priestly prayer, 178, 1718, 1721, 23, 25, and then John 20, 21. 17 references to Jesus with the verb apostello as one who is sent. 
Again, the first and perhaps the most sweeping of these verses is John 3.17, where it is proclaimed that God did not send his son into the world that he might judge the world or condemn the world, we could say, but that the world would be saved through him. Jesus was faithful to God who sent him on this mission. He was faithful to him who appointed him. He even said, in essence, mission accomplished with the word tetelestai, or the Aramaic equivalent of it from the cross. He successfully fulfilled this mission. But John's gospel uses another verb for sent in combination with or in addition to apostello. It means exactly the same thing. The word is pempo, P-E-M-P, long O or omega O. I'm using the lemmas on all these words. It is used with reference to Jesus 23 times. 23 plus 17 equals 40. We're playing the numbers. And so that a full 40 times we are informed that Jesus was sent. Apostello times 17, Pempo times 23. Total 40. 40 is a term that has to do with, among other things, completion. Hebrews is regarding completion. Aistotelos, as we have in the lead-off in the Septuagint of 56 canonical psalms. So 40 speaks of completion, among other things. Jesus was faithful to the Father as the sent one. And so a total of 40 times Jesus is referred to as sent. So this gives a little more beef behind the one use of apostolon for him in Hebrews 3.1. And this is enough to establish, I think, understatement, that the title apostle is fitting for Jesus. Pempo, in connection with Jesus being sent by the Father, is used in John and John 16.5. Now, if you want to get picky, there are two more verses in John where Jesus is the implied sent one. We're not counting those, although you can if you want. Implied, which would mean there are 42 uses of it in John 7.18 and John 13.16, two implied references. In John 20.21, as I said before, Jesus makes pempo and apostello mean exactly the same thing with slight, there are slight implications or slight differences if we want to get technical. But it means to cause someone to depart for a particular purpose. Go and do this, in other words. Consequently, in the fourth G, the fourth G is very significant in identifying Jesus as the apostle. And then it says again, of our confession. 
not quite our creed, although creed kind of is connected to confession. In, the, in every case, it is God the Father who is the sender, who sent Jesus. And so there is a divine sender and a divine person sent. In Jesus' case, the divine person assumed a human nature, took hold of the seed of Abram, sperma Abram, and fulfilled his mission as the man Christ Jesus, the only mediator between God and mankind. The Holy Spirit fulfills his mission as a divine person sent by two divine persons, the Father and the Son. The Holy Spirit does not assume humanity, but he does indwell human beings and cause them to be kind of co-laborers together with God in bringing about the kingdom of God and the messianic age, and that's in 1 Corinthians 3.6, for example, or 3.9, rather, as well as Colossians 4.11. So it is God who sends, God the Father who sent Jesus. Even as in Hebrews 1.2, it is God the Father who spoke in his Son with decisive finality in these last days. Forty times, then, the words Pempo and Apostolo are used of Jesus, with two more implied. Now, with specific reference to the universally saving significance of Jesus Christ, the first deployment of Apostolo, I can't really emphasize this enough. You see John 3.16 everywhere. You don't see John 3.17 in many places, on banners or on people's tattoos. John 3.17, in the apostello use in John 3.17, the fact that it's used first there is very telling, very revelatory. God sent his son into the world so that, to the end that, for the purpose that, God would save the world through him. God saved the world through him because God sent him to be the propitiation, expiation, for the sins of the world. Moreover, expiation, propitiation, is the service performed by the archpriest. It has been performed by our archpriest, Archierus, which happens to be used ten times in connection with Jesus. In Hebrews 10, playing the numbers, is also a number that indicates completion, as well as other things like perfection. He is the perfect archpriest, the complete apostolos. He is the archpriest of our confession, namely Jesus, who tasted death, the wages of sin, for everyone, the whole world of humanity, whom we see now with the eyes of our heart enlightened. We see him crowned with glory and honor at God's right side. He is the apostle and the archpriest of our confession. Homologia. We'll see something about that before we close. He is, we could say, the apostle of our creed. See, we started with the apostle's creed. Now we are ending with Jesus, the apostle of our creed. But more than creed, 
confession. And we'll see what that means. In some ways, we could compare the word creed with the word confession here in Hebrews. Earlier, we recited the Apostles' Creed. Apostles is plural and possessive. So it's that which ostensibly was from the 12 apostles of Jesus, or at least what they believed and what they proclaimed. But here in Hebrews 3.1, Jesus is the apostle of our creed or confession, or that which we acknowledge as ultimate reality. That's where there's going to be a great clash in our cultures, because we have the acknowledgement of what ultimate reality is determines a whole lot of thing in your life. If you think that ultimate reality is human science, then you're going to be at odds with people who believe that Jesus of Nazareth is ultimate reality. And sooner or later, there's going to be some kind of clash. And if those who are getting the upper hand are those who are so-called secular or secular humanists or socialist communists or whatever they are in the political realm, they get the upper hand, then persecution is going to result. And those who hold the confession that ultimate reality is a person named Jesus are going to be among the first people that are wanting to be expelled from that. If you don't believe that's going to go on, it is going on in communist China right now. Yes, communist China that professional basketball players genuflect to or get on both knees to in our very time. So, let's back up a little bit. Back up, preacher. You see, uh, before I go any further, I don't don't know if this can be gotten on film. Let me try it. I'm going to hold this up for our anonymous cameraman today. See if you can catch this. This is a t-shirt from my sister Sandy, and it says, Pastor, because hardcore devil-stomping ninja isn't an official job title. So thank you, Sandra, for my t-shirt. And because I've gained a little weight during the pandemic and I'm going to lose it, uh, it's going to fit me better after I get on my, back on my regimen of eating a little less sugar and working out. But I I like that title. And my sister Sandy is uh, a woman of great and tested faith. Thanks, Sandy. Appreciate it. So you got to back up here. I'm I'm a devil stomping ninja, so i got to back up a little bit here and just be a reverential pastor for a moment. The point is, what we have is the difference between creed and confession is that a creed is something that is believed and recited or recited without necessarily believing it. A confession is something which is openly subscribed to because it's inwardly believed with the whole heart and it's acknowledged boldly. Homologia goes beyond mere creed or the recitation of what is believed in a religious or liturgical setting. You'd be surprised how many people recite 
creeds in a liturgical or worshipful setting, they don't believe them at all. They don't, deacons that don't believe it, elders that don't believe it, pastors that don't believe it, bishops that don't believe it. So we're talking about confession here. We're talking about something that's believed boldly with the whole heart and professed openly. So our confession is what we both believe and openly, even boldly if necessary, acknowledge or aver to be ultimate reality. In the biblical view, the ultimate reality is Jesus. Jesus is the reality of all that is divinity. He is the reality of all that is truly and really human. Study the gospel sometime if you want to know the, question, the answer to the question, what is a truly human being like? If you're an alien from another planet, you want to study what a truly human being is like? Study Matthew, Mark, and Luke. In fact, read the whole New Testament. Jesus is the ultimate composition of a new creation. For the mystery of God's will is to sum up everything in him. Ephesians 1.10. Moreover, Jesus descended into the lowest regions of the earth and ascended into the region above the heavens in order to fill up everything with himself. Ephesians 1, 21 to 22. Ephesians 4, 10. It's not that which men sometimes reverentially and confidently call science. In 1 Timothy 6, 20, I remember reading the King James and in the Latin Vulgate, the word is falsely so-called science. Don't get off on falsely so-called gnosis, Gnosticism, or today we could say so-called science, as if it's fixed and settled and the ultimate reality and canon and creed and confession to be believed. 1 Timothy 6.20 is instructive here, as 6.11-14 was in our last meeting. So it's not that ultimate reality isn't that which men sometimes reverentially and confidently call science, but reality is he whom the Bible calls the logos, the ultimate reality. To rescind our confession, to rescind our confession, or in any way to retreat from it in order to ease the pain of social shaming, and we live in a time of the greatest social shaming that has ever existed on the planet. If you want to talk about how widespread it is, it began under Mao in communist China. It's practiced exactly by the rioters in our recent riots in the United States. They, you can see, if you watch films of the Maoist who shamed people to kneel and recite things they didn't want to say, even though those things may or may not have been correct aphorisms, and you compare it to what happened in our streets recently, it's Maoist, Chinese, communist, totalitarian shaming as an implement or tool of those who want to bring everybody into their dominion and be their tools. There's a lot of tools in the United States of America today. They're willing to genuflect and kneel to they don't know what. But if it's a sophistry or if it's some kind of a slogan, 
that seems to be correct, they'll kneel to it, they'll bow to it, and they won't even realize that what's behind that soft-sounding slogan is a vicious move to anarchy and totalitarianism. Well, got to back up a little bit, though, don't I? I'm just a gentle pastor. So, we'll close soon. Consider this. To rescind your confession in upcoming pressures or in any way to retreat from it in order to ease the pain of social shaming would indeed be a shame. When? When the Lord comes at his appearing, there will be people who are going to back away from him in shame. The PT who wrote Hebrews doesn't want that to happen. And this PT doesn't want that to happen to you. Consider this. You know and you confess what and who ultimate reality really is. As such, you are history's true pioneers. For you are confessing the reality which will one day be the only reality in future world. Don't go back on your confession if indeed you have really come to understand and to know Jesus as the ultimate reality. If you haven't, I pray that God will convince you of that right now or soon. To rescind, to back off, to retreat, that would be a shame. Shame that people pour on people don't matter at all. It doesn't matter at all. It's nothing but the shame that we'll experience at the appearing of Jesus Christ for departing from him with an evil heart of unbelief. That shame is going to mean something. I don't want to have it. I don't want you to have it. I don't want anyone to have it but some will have it because some have in history backed off. Some are backing off. Some will back off and retreat. So in fact, I don't want you to back away from him in shame when he appears. 1 John 2.28, read it. Read it and weep if you want or read it and rejoice. No one wants that for you who loves you, not the PT who wrote Hebrews and not this PT. So Jesus is not only the apostle of our confession. He's also the archpriest of our confession. Archpriest becomes the main title for Jesus in Hebrews. It is used with specific reference to Jesus as our archpriest. Play the numbers one more time. Ten times. 217, 31, 414, 55, 510, 620, 726, 728, 81, and 911. Now, there are other times where the word archpriest is used. I'm talking about the ten times where it specifically refers to Jesus Christ, to our Lord. So there are ten references to Jesus in Hebrews alone and simply, and there are ten references to Jesus as archpriest, specifically, though there are other mentions of the word archpriest. So if we're to play the numbers as we've been today, 40, 
for the number of references to being sent in John's gospel, 10 references simply to Jesus, and 10 to him as archpriest, these are all numbers in one way or another have to do with completion. And the completer is Jesus Christ and God the Father who completes him. And the singular use of apostle, one time only, of Jesus shows the singular significance of Jesus as the faithful completer of a mission by which he came into saving solidarity with all the human race and all the evilly affected creation in order to bring all of creation, including all of humanity, to the glory with which he alone right now is crowned. His significance as the apostle of our confession, therefore, is a universally saving significance. Father, may we see Jesus as the apostle of our confession. May you strengthen the resolve, the resolution, the determination of the hearts of many to remain true to this confession, even in upcoming events and in upcoming cultural shifts, wherever they may be. We thank you, Father, for providing both spiritually and materially so that this church, this assembly, can continue through a time of crisis and a time in which we are to rejoice in the Lord. And we thank you in Christ's name. Amen.